Ladies and gentlemen, this week on the Rise Together podcast, we have Dr. Elizabeth Lord Rollins. She is a board certified obstetrician and gynecologist with a background that spans the humanities in both allopathic and alternative medicine. She's also an activist and community organizer, having received numerous accolades, including the award that she won in 2013 at the Stonewall Honors. She is the daughter of poet and activist Audre Lorde, whose groundbreaking work, The Cancer Journals, documented her fierce battle with breast cancer and celebrates this year its 40th anniversary. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Elizabeth Lord Rollins. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis. And I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Elizabeth. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. Hi. Oh, it's great to be speaking with you. I am you. so happy to have you here. This is a, you know, a topic that inevitably, unfortunately, will affect so many people who are listening or have, has already affected so many people who are listening. But uh, I like to ask any of our guests as we jump into a conversation, if in your own words, you could tell us just a little bit about your personal history how the book, the cancer journals, all of the work has come to be for anyone who may not know the great work that you do. You know, the cancer journals was was written by my mom. Uh, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was just 15. And then she had a 14 year struggle. It originally diagnosed with breast cancer, underwent a surgery. Um, my brother and I were both in our early years of high school at that time. I was a sophomore. My brother was a freshman. And actually, where we were going to school, it was right across the street from where she had her surgery and where she recovered at Beth Israel. So about six years after the original uh, mastectomy, she was diagnosed with liver metastases. And and at that point, she'd already written the cancer journals because the cancer journals was kind of informed by her, her first go through with cancer, her post mastectomy life, you know, breast cancer was kind of the cancer that dared not speak its name in the 1970s and, and before that time. And, and I think my mother's work, the cancer journals and, and the work of a, a few other really brave uh, women and men sort of made, took the stigma out of breast cancer and made it something that not only that we could talk about, but one of the things that goes on in the cancer journals is folks from Reach for Recovery come to my mother's hospital room and say, hey, you know, uh, this is the way to get back to normalcy. And I guess one of the takeaways from her cancer experience, or even early on, and it definitely continued through her struggle, was that there is no such thing as return to normalcy. There is life after cancer, but uh, I conceive, and certainly for me, it's been the post-cancer experience is a mixture of vigilance and joy, an aggressive embracing of joy, because there really is, you know, 
we're all going to pass from the earth at one point, but there's nothing like the experience of cancer to sort of bring it home that your time is limited. We don't know how limited. Carpe diem. <laughs> the time is today. Right. It's a wild thing because I think there is something in the human condition that has us almost living into a belief of invincibility until we're confronted with something that reminds us of our mortality. And there, from an early time in your life, was always this reminder that time is limited, that you only have a certain number of days, that you don't necessarily have a, a guarantee of tomorrow or that you have to, in some ways, embrace everything you can do with the day that you have today. Was that part of how, or, or were you cognizant of the impact of being reminded of your mortality because of the way that your mom, for as long as she did, was always having to be reminded of the mortality that she herself was having to fight for because of the diagnosis? Well, I, I think in some ways, wow, there's so... There's so many things in what you just said, Dave. I mean, first of all, I couldn't agree with you more. It really is the human condition. When I see folks on TV who are my age, I'm almost 60, talking about how COVID affects seniors and, you know, there's this underlying current that we're not in danger, we don't need to wear masks, and and the person who is speaking is in the risk group. I mean... You know, not to mention young people also get COVID, but it, it's almost this feeling that uh, no way, you know, not going to happen to me. And and the person speaking is like me, you know, an overweight 60 plus year old. It's it, it's wild to me. But to answer the other part of your question, well, the thing that I remember after my mother's cancer was, uh, and my brother and I were both teenagers, once she got home from the hospital, she said, look, I'll, I will drive you to the supermarket. But from now on, you guys are going to go into the supermarket. You're going to do the shopping. And you'll come home. You'll put it away. We were already, we had a family routine where my brother and I would also participate in the cooking every week. Uh, we were all responsible for a certain number of meals, but that kind of ramped up. And there was a feeling in the household and explicitly talked about that our mom really felt Uh, I need more time to write. And there's a certain level of quotidian tasks that I no longer have the luxury of indulging. So you guys are going to need to pick up the slack on that. I think for me, my journey after cancer, it wasn't as sharp a demarcation. You know, at at the time that I was diagnosed, uh, I was uh, 39, almost 40 years old. I, I didn't leave work. I had I'd just gotten a new job. I was literally two months into my new job when I got diagnosed. You know, I, I remember I was at the St. Vincent's Comprehensive Cancer Care Center, which no longer exists. There were all kinds of uh, alternative and complementary therapies available to kind of bolster your journey through cancer. And I unfortunately didn't take advantage of any of them just because just I didn't have the time. Uh, knock wood, you know, it's been 16 years since then. I hope I don't have to go through that experience again. But if I do, I think I'll really take some time away from work to just really concentrate on the experience of getting through cancer treatment, Yeah, which is an experience all by itself in addition to what happens afterward. I do think that knowing and being witness to my mother's journey through really informed my medical practice way before it informed my approach to 
cancer because by the time I was diagnosed, it was just kind of taken for granted that patients were going to be their own advocates, that patients were entitled to a lot of education around options. And it was expected by all the doctors I dealt with that I would have done my homework and would come in with a ton of questions. And that just wasn't the case in the 1970s. So when my mother was diagnosed with liver metastases, she went to Switzerland and then later on to Berlin and took medications that now are actually part of our armamentarium here in the United States. But at the time, those medications were thought of as quackery. And her insistence on being her own advocate and, and pursuing what was then alternative medicine really informed my medical practice later on. Well, what's so interesting is it's unbelievable, I'm sure for you as much as anyone, that it's been 40 years since the cancer journals were published. And so it was groundbreaking at the time, in part because of just the environment inside of which it was published and some of the taboo or some of the strangeness of talking as honestly and openly about cancer as it ended up being at the time. How do you feel like the book has been adapted to modern times? Like, is the discussion around the book or the discussion even just around cancer a thing that you can see over the arc of time as something that has become something that people become a little bit more comfortable with or or at more ease with discussing the kind of options that are available? I mean, it feels like it has to have changed because of just what kind of time uh, it originally was published inside of, but I'm curious from your perspective, how, how you think things have changed? I think the advocacy for all kinds of cancer, but especially for breast cancer, is a lot more out in the open. There, there are changes that happened on the personal level, you know, books that sort of give us permission to feel loss around the loss of our life before cancer, the loss of our breasts or breasts, if if that was part of the journey, loss of our hair, and loss for partners too. That is also part of, of this. I, you know, I uh, was talking with Ibram Kendi last week. I told Dr. Kendi, you know, I hats off to my partner because I think it's harder almost, to be a a partner of somebody going through a cancer journey than it is to be going through the cancer journey yourself. And the, the feelings of, could I be losing this person that I love so much, loss of the life that we had together before, maybe changes about how your partner feels about himself or herself sexually and what that means for your relationship. Those kinds of things, you know, the the journal format that the cancer journals happens in really makes room for all of that. In addition to the political discussion around the politics of breast cancer and the politics of carcinogens and how they're allowed to flourish, you know, in our society, because there are corporate concerns that are more aligned with the production of carcinogens than of wellness. And that was especially true in the 1970s. It's still true. But that conversation is different from the political and economic conversation. And I feel that the cancer journals and other works have made room for both of those. So I, I think the change has been on a bunch of different fronts. I know a few years ago, you wrote a really lovely tribute in The Advocate about the idea of meeting your mother. 
that for the first time at age 16, you were sitting down really intensely diving into some of her work. And as much as I'm sure your experience was pretty unique relative to many of our listeners, I think all of us can relate to that feeling of growing up and discovering that our parents are actually people. They actually have feelings and experiences that are separate from being our mom or our dad. And I'm curious if the way you were introduced to the humanity that your mother possessed, the way you thought about who she was. I mean, you knew her first as a poet, then you were discovering later through her writings that she's also someone who's battling and, and, and fighting cancer. It, was there something in that that helped you become who you are or helped you see her in a light that you can hold some gratitude for or, or changed a little bit of how you perceive this role that she had as a human, but not just as a parent. Yeah, it is kind of a universal experience. You know, one of my favorite country songs is um, When We Met Mom Before She Was Mom. It, are you familiar with this country song? Okay, I, I love this song. It's, it's about these two brothers finding a cache of photographs of their mother from like the 60s when she was like, in a bikini, hanging out with a bunch of folks wearing tie-dye by a beat-up, like, Volkswagen van. And maybe there was, you know, the ingestion of various illegal substances. <laughs> Who knows? It's a little unclear. I'm grateful for my mother's uh, protection of us as children and creating a protected space when we were kids that was kind of separate from a lot of the adult drama that was going on. I mean, my parents separated when I was, I guess, seven, and then fully divorced when I was eight. Uh, the woman who became our parent, uh, our, our, our stepmom, Frances, was a wonderful, wonderful parent. And th there were uh, definitely things that were, you know, adult currents, we'll call them, going on through their relationship that um, my brother and I growing up really were not privy to. And as an adult, I'm very grateful for that because I know how hard it can be sometimes to shield your kids from some of those things and to really try to bring it to the household that the household is about them. Yeah. That even though the adults are in charge, that the household is about the kids. Uh, so I, I do, I feel super grateful for that. At age 16, maybe I was ready for a change. I mean, it was just sort of a confluence of events, right? I was literally across the country from my household of origin, and that made some physical space and room. And I was 16 and, and had been fighting with my mom kind of tooth and nail over the prior year. So that made a lot of emotional room, right? When you're in that space where you feel like you just can't stand each other. And so I was ready to see my mom in, in a, a really different light. Uh, before that, these changes in the household, it felt like, what, we have more chores to do. And of course, there was a lot of resentment and not really a lot of recognition as to why things had changed in our household. After reading her work um, and sort of seeing her as a person completely separate from our family and completely separate from me, that perception really changed. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. The work that I do or that Rachel does in trying to provide tools to people sometimes has us bearing the details of our own personal journey in a way that obviously I am conscientious. What will my children think? Were they to read some of the things that I am confessing that I also struggle with, that at the same time, I'm also 
wanting to normalize some of the humanity that I inevitably end up having so that it also gives them permission to feel and grow and experience. But there is this very interesting dichotomy between how do you protect them from being overwhelmed, but also introduce them to the concepts. I'm sure there were some similarities in this experience of your experience as well. But it is a like it is just an interesting thing that I continue to grapple with. And I'm sure that anyone going through anything that ends up being harder or heavier has to try and kind of struggle through to know what's the right amount of information. How do you bring them into the story so they can understand what's happening in a way that doesn't overwhelm them or make them feel unsafe? Yeah, absolutely. So I know as of January 2020, there are more than three and a half million women with a history of breast cancer in the U.S. And yet there are very few media depictions that have pushed the boundaries that confront the illness and uh, what it does to women's bodies. I know, obviously, the cancer journals have done that, you know, in a, a lot of ways for the last 40 years, but I'm I'm stuck on why, for something that affects as many people as it does, does it still feel like there's not as much normalizing this thing that inevitably plagues people? I, people who are listening right now have gone through it. They know someone who's experienced it, and yet there just isn't as much conversation about what it is or how it affects people or how it affects partners. Why, why do you think that ends up being the case? Because I can't myself get my head around why when it comes to things like cancer or breast cancer, it's just not a more normal conversation. I wonder if it's some of the reluctance in our culture to see women in the nitty gritty. Mm. And, and I guess it, because we have such a, an interesting mix here in, in the United States in the prevailing culture. I've had the privilege in the last few months of, of working as an OBGYN uh, at a medical center that caters to a largely Hasidic population. And for many of my patients, you know, there's certainly a lot less freedom around their bodies that I have taken for granted my whole life. I mean, my mother put a copy of Our Bodies Ourselves in my hands when I was nine years old. I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Oh, this is gross. <laughs> you know, but it was there for the taking, right? And the inf- and the information was there. And, and for my Hasidic patients, it's a it's a much more constricted sensibility around women's bodies, and really the ownership of women's bodies is uh, is different uh, from what I certainly was raised with, and yet. You know, the media images that we're bombarded with all the time, that we really don't even consciously take in, but it's almost like a a taken for granted. I I was watching the news the other night and I saw uh, an advertisement, I guess it was for underwear. I'm not really sure the sound wasn't on while the advertisement was running, but it was women of all ages and all sizes and all colors and they're and they're all together briefs and a bra and i just i was staring at the tv with my mouth open and like i said i'm almost 60 so seeing these images of women who look like me coming to me from the television was so revolutionary that i completely stopped what i was doing Maybe I'm getting a little bit off the track here from your question, because I think your question is, you know, super incisive and really important. But 
to me, that was sort of a watershed moment of thinking, why is this so foreign? Why am I now moved to run to the computer and look up the brand name of these panties and perhaps order because I want to give them my business because I've seen women on TV that look like me and they're not the perfect body and, and there's stuff going on with these bodies. I read in the New York Times, Dave, that there is a show in, is it Sweden? It is adult folks and they come onto the stage in robes. And at some point they drop their robes and they field questions from kids between the ages of, I think, six and 10 about their bodies and their volunteers of different sizes and ages and uh, racial ethnic composition. And there's been, I think, this one like new TV program of the year in Sweden. I mean, it's interesting that the kids were interviewed afterward about how they feel having participated in this. And it really seems to have changed like self-esteem issues around bodies to have seen adult bodies that are not generally what they see on TV. You know, in my own cancer journey, it was chemotherapy for about eight months. I did lose all of my hair. I was, uh, you know, 39, 40 at the time. I went through menopause after my second, you know, never menstruated again uh, and began to have hot flashes. And, you know, as far as my ovaries were concerned, that was kind of all she wrote after that. So the the radiation treatment, I, I had a lumpectomy. So I didn't lose my right breasts, but, you know, I still have a huge scar and I'm a pretty deep breasted woman, you know, double D. Uh, so it, there's a definite noticeable big defect in, in the right breast. And it definitely hangs very differently from the one on the other side. I've been conscious, you know, changing to go into pools and at the gym and so forth that, you know, other women will occasionally, you know, just sort of like glance, especially younger women kind of like, whoa, but I've never felt sort of a, I've never felt stigma from other women about it. During the radiation, you know, I went through a lot of, and people have been through radiation, both men and women can attest to this. There's kind of a weird skin burn that happens and it can be super gross. All yeah. <laughs> like, right. So when I say the nitty gritty, I mean, that's some of the stuff that I'm talking yeah. about. And, and it is, When I hear friends and acquaintances who have been diagnosed with cancer of any type, but especially breast cancer, I I tell um, whoever the contact person is, yeah, here's my cell phone number. If they want to get in touch with me, they definitely can. There's, you know, life after cancer, they're in for a lousy year. But if they, you know, want to touch base or talk about anything, I'm definitely here. And, And I, I have felt that love and that support from other survivors as well that I've been super grateful for. Well, what's interesting is, I mean, so much of this show is the idea of creating a bridge of empathy so that other people who might have uh, not experienced the thing that you have will connect a little bit to your experience in a way that changes the way that they think about what it means to fight cancer, be a cancer survivor, but also so that if someone actually identifies with the experience that you've been through, that it normalizes some of what this experience ends up looking like because that struggle, the side effects, the things that inevitably end up coming, that is a normal part of a journey like this and normalizing it 
uh, hopefully in some ways makes people feel less alone, feel like they can, uh, in solidarity with other people who've also been through it, understand a little bit of how their experience is super normal, even if it's a little bit different than the experience that other people have gone through. Uh, I know that the work that your mom has done, the work that you have done, have definitely helped generations of women confront their own illnesses. Is I mean, part of the, the work that you do about trying to extend that empathy bridge, try to normalize a little bit of the experience of this experience? Yeah, I think the empathy bridge is, and that's a great term for it. It really does change the experience of going through something like cancer when you have that empathy bridge available to you. And, you know, when I talk about the the nitty gritty of what happens to our bodies during the cancer journey, and not just the cancer journey, right? Even, Even aging, just normal aging. The other piece of of sharing some of these experiences in their totality, no matter if it's kind of embarrassing or, oh, we don't talk about this, or is that it's valuable information in a, uh, in a medical environment where, you know, as a practicing physician myself, sometimes if your schedule allows you 15 minutes with that patient, it's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, you may not necessarily delve into all the questions that are going to bring up some of the medical issues that are so important to your patient. And she may not even remember until she's out the door. Oh, yeah, I really kind of wanted to talk about this. When you have at your disposal either a podcast or a book in your hand or a conversation on the phone with a friend who's been through this experience, And she's talking about, you know, cheating. Yeah, vaginal dryness is an issue. Um, This is what I did. You can talk to your doctor about it, you know. And Dave, not to get on a political soapbox or anything. So, you know, stop me if this is getting to be too much. But, you know, I wonder about the, the societal and medical imperative to look at the conditions that women suffer with as opposed to the conditions that men suffer with. I mean, there is some work going on on local vaginal estrogens, even with women who have had breast cancer. I've, you know, offered them to my patients who have had breast cancer, even though they may be on a systemic anti-estrogen, because the, the data that we have right now really demonstrate that that these are not things that are going to put you at increased cancer risk. And yet, you know, there's sort of this, oh, well, we don't know. And and there's not a lot of research money right now to investigate this stuff. Uh, There is some work that's ongoing, but I wonder if it was more of an imperative to, you know, how important is our sexual health? How important is our sexual health when we're no longer 20 or 30 years old? You know, this seems to be a huge blind spot for society. And I have people in my practice, women who are active and healthy, and they're in their 80s and 90s. And sexual health is going to be a part of what they're going through in addition to all the other parts of their lives. Since cancer really does impact that experience as well, I want to be able to offer them you know, actual studies and information, not just my personal experience. And and I'm hoping for more of that work in the future. Yeah, what's crazy is as a person who has not personally experienced cancer, I've been fortunate to frankly not even have 
too many people. I just, I lost an uncle this last year to, to cancer, but I have had not as much experience I, relative to, I would argue, many, many people. But when you, when I, I'll talk for myself, think about cancer, I think more about what a radiation treatment is like or what the recovery is like. The idea of cancer being a battle that you fight is something that I am, I can connect to, but don't have a ton of experience with. One of the things I think is interesting in the work that your mother did, or even the way that you are continuing to do work inside of the space is that you've talked about the pieces of the battle being more about the battle over fear and the battle with mortality than even some of the practical realities of just what it takes to make it through treatment. I, I, I know that that thinking may have in fact been somewhat radical 40 years ago, but is that something that today is a part of the work that you're doing or a part of the work that you'd hope to keep alive from the work of your mom? Yeah, I, I think dealing with the practicalities of cancer helps to give people the support and the space so that they can think about the broader context of, well, what do I do with the rest of my life now? Yeah. And am I really being fulfilled in this you know, job, psychic space, you know, fill in the blank. And if not, how could I be with the rest of whatever time I have left? You know, whether it's 60 years or whether it's two or whether it's even less than that, you know, how do I go about the rest of my life? I feel that, you know, I really had a luxurious experience in that I was surrounded by so many loving people. You know, I had a partner who was there with me during, you know, all of the rough times and I had health insurance. It's a big deal, you know, and, and even with health insurance at the time, I remember that year, you know, was, I laid out $20,000 in unpaid medical expenses. I never had a tax return that looked like that. And I got audited the next year because of it. Um, you know, when I declared that on my deductions, you know, and not everybody has that, but without that support, you know, you really don't necessarily have the room to tackle some of the bigger issues. And, you know, I'm not alone in this work. There are so many people who are doing great work around this. I mean, the Susan Komen Foundation, you know, I've been kind of active in the last few weeks with Ralph Lauren's Pink Pony Foundation, which really strives to bring quality and comprehensive cancer care to folks of lesser financial means. And some of the stuff that they provide are navigators to help navigate people through the cancer experience. I mean, I remember shaking my head and thinking, uh, you know, uh, dealing with the medical insurance, dealing with trying to find second opinions. And I'm a medical professional. <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like for people who aren't even in the medical field. You know, these navigators are absolutely important when it comes to the cancer experience. I follow someone who fought and succumbed to her cancer battle uh, just this last spring. And one of the last posts that she put up was the wish that anyone and everyone out there could experience the pursuit of living when you know that you are dying, in that she was terminal, there were so much that they had done inside of treatment, and the treatments were done, and now she knew it was just a matter of time. But in that matter of time, 
man, did she show up well for her life and pursue every single thing that was on a bucket list, every single thing that mattered, and frankly, was able to wean and push away anything that doesn't. Uh, it's a crazy thing that this human experience, right, that this human experience has us, again, thinking that, oh, we can, um, you know, we have all the time in the world or that we will get to that passion of ours one day. And then a diagnosis may, in fact, be uh, as much as no one wants to have to go through it, the blessing that affords you the opportunity to see how it's insignificant so many things end up being and how much uh, importance there is in leaning into and pursuing the things that you have as gifts or the, the, the work that you want to try and accomplish. Is there, because of your diagnosis, as much as it's been some time, a different way that you approach living into every day the carpe diem of it all because of having had a glimpse of the mortality piece inside of your life or the experience of that of your mom? Yeah, you know, I, I'd, I'd say yes. Uh, I, in, in the couple of years right after the diagnosis, I very much, I very much kind of just went along, you know, with my path kind of the way that it was. The pursuing of acupuncture for me is is definitely a, a piece of that. I really, um, I'm in the middle of pursuing a master's degree in acupuncture. I plan to integrate it into my medical practice uh, when I'm done. Uh, and, and I hope to sort of write some grants and do some research. I'm sort of bringing it into hospitals for obstetric care uh, in a way that there are some hospitals where it really is present right now, but, but there are pretty few. Um, and, I, and I do think that, that that will grow in the future. Uh, and I hope to be a part of that growth. So let's see. If I hadn't had cancer, I don't think I actually would have made space in my professional life to pursue this master's degree. I think I probably, I mean, I ended up leaving my current practice because I found that I couldn't do both. Yeah. I just didn't have the flexibility to be able to to do the study in acupuncture the way that I needed to. And so now I'm in, I'm a, I work with a health center where I have a part-time position. I never conceived of part-time medical practice during my residency or anything else. I mean, I, yeah, so this is very, very different. And it's allowing me some time to actually, you know, go bike riding and do other stuff that's really important to me. It is a crazy thing. The, the world that we live inside of, you know, right? It, it, the, the crazy thing is that we live inside this world that doesn't sometimes prompt us to consider the things that we would do if only we were able to connect to the limited amount of time we have or what might happen if the world that we know as normal were to be upended. And yet here we all are inside of this COVID, here we all are inside of things that no one could have ever imagined. And maybe one of the side benefits uh, will be that people are able to connect to actually finding the things that are important to keep as a part of their normal and let go of the things that are frankly not important whatsoever. Oh, Dave, you are so right. Let me ask you, Dave, have you ever seen any production of Anna DeVere Smith's Let Me Down Easy? I think it's called Let Me Down Easy. I have not, but I want you to tell me about it. Or, oh, this yeah, it, it's a it's a one woman show. She to develop this show and, and to write it, she interviewed folks who had been through the cancer experience, uh, some of whom survived, some of whom didn't. 
I, I, I can't even remember all the people that she interviews. So I'm going to need to, I, I probably, I, I'd love to look this up so that I can name them by name. But the, the ex-governor of Texas, Ann, what is her name? Richards, yeah. Yeah, Ann Richards, Lance Armstrong, this guy who wrote for the Daily News for years and years and was a telephone, television broadcaster who was an awesome, awesome guy. And it's a one-woman show. She it appears on stage as these folks. So one by one, and, and one is a Buddhist monk and, you know, and, and discusses the journey through cancer for these, each, for these individual folks and their philosophy around cancer. And this question of what do you do with the rest of your life really weaves all the way through the production. I think it's about an hour and a half, maybe two it is a life-changing experience just to see this on stage. And I think it's been produced in some endurable content. I mean, I sure hope so. It really changed my life. But one of the points of, of her let me down easy is that one of the characters talks about how people don't change that we all think we're going to take whatever money we've saved. And if our desire is to get on a ship and go to Tahiti and live out the rest of our lives painting, you know, that's what we're going to do. But the reality is for most of us, we don't do that with a diagnosis of cancer or really anything imminently life-limiting. We continue to go along in the way that we have. And why do we do that? So, yeah, I, I just, as you were speaking, that, that let me down easy came, came to me. And, and just because I remember seeing that on stage and, you know, it was incredibly emotional. And she is, I mean, she inhabits these characters physically transforming right before your very eyes with no makeup, no nothing. I mean, it's just incredible. And I remember thinking, yeah, okay, I'm not going to continue to say yes to everything I say yes to, because I kind of am a big yes woman. And it was that production that really gave me that permission, even though I had read the cancer journals. And there was something about seeing Anna DeVere Smith up on stage, inhabiting these characters at the end of their lives, or not the end of their lives, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong is one of the characters. I mean, Knockwood, he, you know, survived. He's doing very well. But to really talk about their cancer experience and what it meant for their lives going forward. So good. I will check that out. There's, there's I think, uh, if there's a gift of 2020, it has been the destruction of the illusion of control. We, I think, uh, again, as humans, <laughs> right. right? Like we've just uh, lulled ourselves into this conceit that we, in fact, are in control of things. And then a year like this shows up and reminds you so clearly that, nope, there is no control. You cannot control the things that have happened. Worrying about what ends up coming next is a complete waste of time. You can control how you show up for yourself today. And uh, whether that's, you know, with a cancer diagnosis or not, embracing the only thing that you can control, which is how well you show up for yourself, ends up being the thing that I am super focused on in the midst of my own life going through transition in real time. Hey, October is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, I have not personally uh, spent as much time understanding what that means or what people can do to be supportive of or get behind efforts that support it. Is there anything uh, in your work, in your practice, in what you know as a doctor that you might afford our audience for how they might participate in something like Breast Cancer Awareness Month? I'm into getting mammograms <laughs> and, and telling everybody to get mammograms. I'm a believer in mammograms. Although uh, for myself, I was diagnosed with breast cancer three months after a normal mammogram, and I felt my own lump. So although we have a really excellent study out of Denmark, over 80,000 women followed for 20 years. I mean, this is a great study. And one of the upshots of this study was that uh, breast self-exam in this particular study did not seem to confer diagnosis at an earlier stage. I'm still, even with those results, a believer in breast self-exam, and I tell all my patients uh, to examine their own breasts in the shower once a month, whether it's the first of the month, whether it's right after a menstrual cycle. Um, I'm a believer in that as well. So breast cancer awareness on a personal level for all of us and breast cancer awareness for men. You know, this is something that is not discussed. I think if a man feels anything in his breasts or, you know, a partner says, oh, you know, honey, what's that? He should run, not walk to the doctor immediately and get it checked out. I will second this emotion. I will tell you, my grandfather, my, my dad's dad had breast cancer, his dad, breast cancer. My uncle, who passed away just this last year, died from a cancer, but also had a cancer mutation that I just went and got tested for, just so that I could know whether wow. I was also susceptible necessarily to cancer at a higher rate level. I'm not, thank goodness, but I'm going to continue to you know, do my annual physical. But breast cancer for men is very much as uh, a thing, and it's not a thing to have shame for or be weird about. It is just a thing. So if you as a man are listening, you got to check yourself as well. And I'm a believer in, you know, giving money. Again, I, I, I will try to keep away from my soapbox. But, you know, we're in such a broken health and broken health system now. The number of people without coverage is really startling. And, and it's incredibly encouraging to me, the private foundations that have stepped into that breach and made it possible for people to get mammograms and to have high quality services once diagnosed with cancer and help kind of wading through getting stuff paid for and reimbursed. You know, you probably know this, Dave, more than half of the bankruptcies in, in our country are secondary to some sort of serious health diagnosis that led to big medical bills. I mean, it's disgusting, honestly. So whatever we can do as private citizens to kind of help support those efforts, I'm in favor of those as well. I love the NFL's October, that color pink that the NFL has adopted for the month of October is I think one of my absolute favorite colors. I never really liked pink before that color pink showed up. It's sort of a manly pink. It is. Right, very The NFL is doing it. The Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball's got some pink bats that are happening. I'm here for the whole stinking thing. Uh, you, are, you are an activist. I mean, even just what you were saying uh, represents some activism. But I know uh, as a doctor, OBGYN, you've also been an activist community leader. You received the Stonewall Honors from the Stonewall Community Foundation in 2013 for your work in the LGBTQ community in New York City. I'm curious how you have seen 
the world that you live inside of and the work that you do in practicing medicine and activism going hand in hand? I, th I think, you know, if you care about patients, you can't help but be an activist. For a lot of U.S. physicians, we weren't necessarily raised in a tradition of activism because medical school is something, I mean, it's really beginning to change. You know, for many, many decades in the United States, medical school was something that was available really to, to folks of higher socioeconomic status, uh, period, end of story. And folks of color really still are, are underrepresented in the majority of medical schools. Although I have to say, uh, I graduated medical school in 1993. I believe there were five people of color in our class of 156. I've been had the pleasure and honor of serving as a mentor to somebody who was a, a Columbia Physicians and Surgeons uh, class of 2019 and their medical school class was 25% people of color. And that's underrepresented people of color. So um, that's taking Asian folks off the table. It's important for Asians to go to medical school too, but in medical, school, medical schools in, in the United States, they're not necessarily as underrepresented as uh, Latinx and, and African-American folks are. Uh, and certainly Native American folks incredibly underrepresented in medical schools in the United States. but. Let's say you're a white man of privilege, born to you know family with a ton of money, and uh, maybe you're seriously waspy looking, blonde <laughs> hair and blue eyed. I have the privilege of knowing a lot of folks like that in medicine, and they also are, you know, for many of them, they're activists as well because it may not be a tradition they were born into. It may not be something that they need to do personally for their lives because they're sitting in a position of privilege. And yet seeing what their patients go through on a daily basis has turned them into activists in a, in a way that I think also is not really written about a lot. When I uh, was in medical school, I joined uh, a group called uh, Physicians for National Healthcare Program. At the time, it was, let's see, so we're talking the late 80s. It was, you know, small groups of people. I'd, I'd go to the annual uh, conference and there'd be maybe a couple of long-haired folks, you know, ex-hippies. Those were, those were the older folks in, 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 the, in the organization. Wow, Dave, when you go to the annual organization, when you go to the annual conference of the Physicians for National Healthcare Program now, I, I was one a few years ago in Cambridge, Massachusetts. People of all political leanings, all ages, all shapes and sizes, all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, all united in this idea that we have, that in a country of such plenty, there has got to be a way to make healthcare available to every single person, regardless of their socioeconomic background. It's, it's, it's absolutely possible. So anyway, yeah, I'm on my soapbox again. But, I like but, your soapbox. It's a good <laughs> box to stand from. Come on. I think that that's what I, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was four years old. And I, I never tied it into activism. I don't know where this desire came from. I have all kinds of pictures uh, of me being five years old with a little plastic stethoscope and the little plastic pince-nez eyeglasses that those doctor kits used to come with. 
with my stethoscope clapped on whatever company we were having, asking them to take a deep breath, right? And I never I'm sure, by the way, I'm sure the activism in some ways comes from the experience of the humanity of individual patients that aren't all carbon copy cutouts of the same person. Yeah, you've been able to see the universal nature of struggle or the universal nature of need. And it doesn't discriminate on socioeconomic background. Health is health. And there has to be something in that for anyone who practices medicine that uh, in some ways creates a mandate to show up well for everyone, not just some. Wow, Dave, I couldn't have said it better myself. Come on. (laughs) No, honestly, I really, I, yeah, you're right. All right. You're absolutely We right. are, Dr. Elizabeth, going to finish with a question that I ask every single person who comes on this show. It is a hard question because it requires a single answer. But my question to you is, if you have a single piece of actionable advice, a thought or an idea that listeners could take away and implement into their lives today to make their life better, to have it be filled with more peace or security, what is the single piece of advice you would leave listeners with? find an exercise that you love and do it. Find, oh. find a way to move your body in a way that you really love. Not beating yourself over the head. Oh, I got to exercise. No, 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 no. Find something that you love to do and do it every day. Oh, man, I could not preach this more. Move your body, <laughs> change your mind. Let's go. All right. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lord Rollins, I so appreciate you being here today. What a nice conversation this has been, hopefully normalizing a little bit the conversation around cancer, encouraging people to get the dang mammogram here in October during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Uh, just hopefully helping people who are in the experience of or know someone who's going through cancer feel a little bit more normal for the journey that it ends up being. If people are interested in understanding a little bit more of your work or following you on social media, are there places where they might be able to dive into more of the work that you do? Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) One of my young medical assistants at Ezra's Holim said, you have to have social media platforms, so I'm developing it, but I don't have it yet. I like you more now. This is fantastic. (laughs) It's been an honor. Thank you so much. You oh, you're so awesome, kind. awesome interviewer, man. And I just, oh, you're it, so it has nice. been, it has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know that you have just given gifts to the people who are listening to this show and I appreciate you for uh, getting here, but also getting up early and doing, uh, doing this interview. I will ask any of you as listeners, if you enjoyed this episode to please take a picture on the device that you were listening to post it on the internet, have myself tagged and let me know what it is that you liked about it. Tell every single friend that you've ever known in your entire life how great this episode was. And between now and then, on the advice of a doctor, get up and move your body every single day. We'll see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.